In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor, normally in Brussels, but currently in Ljubljana for the launch of the Slovenian presidency of the EU. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in lovely Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. This week, the Belfast High Court throws out the Unionist and Brexiteer challenge to the Northern Ireland Protocol, while the EU throws an olive branch to the UK on chilled meats and medicines. We'll look at what the High Court ruling said and what the reaction has been. We'll also look in detail at why the EU granted an extension to the chilled meats grace period and what other flexibilities were found. And we'll get some reaction to the deal and figure out why both sides are still at odds over what the extension means and how that might lead to a resumption of hostilities. Tony, first let's take it back 220 years before there was ever a Brexit, there was an act of union, which to fast forward 220 years has now been superseded. Yeah, that's right. So this involves the judicial review that was taken to the High Court by a number of leading unionists, including uh, Jim Allister, who's the uh, head of the traditional unionist voice, uh, Arlene Foster, the former leader of the DUP and former First Minister, uh, as well as David Trimble, the former Ulster unionist leader and uh, co-winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, and uh, Catherine Hoey, uh, a leading Brexiteer in the UK, as well as uh, Ben Habib, another uh, leading Brexiteer. And they were effectively arguing that the Northern Ireland Protocol breached not only the Act of Union, but also the Good Friday Agreement and EU law. Um, uh, and they took that case to the High Court uh, and uh, on Wednesday, the, the judge there who is... Uh, John Colton. John Colton, that's right. He, he effectively dismissed the case, but did, did concede that in some senses the Act of Union was undermined by the protocol, but essentially argued that the Withdrawal Act uh, that the UK Parliament had brought in effectively supersedes the act of union so uh, on that particular argument he said that the the protocol does not uh, breach the act of union uh, nor did it breach the good friday agreement on the question of consent uh, and it, it was not in contradiction uh, with eu law right so so the, the matter was was basically thrown out uh, as far as i'm aware the the plaintiffs are going to appeal uh, but you know, this this was always, I think, going to be a different, a d- difficult case for for them to win, um, because an act of parliament uh, is a fairly robust 
piece of uh, legal certainty and uh, that's what the UK government argued in court that the, 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 the act of uh, the House of Commons with the withdrawal agreement, the withdrawal, the withdrawal act uh, in 2018, uh, that that superseded the, um, the, any effect that the, the act of union might have. So, I mean, the essential argument from the plaintiffs was that the act of union created a, a trading area, a customs area between the island of Ireland and uh, the UK, uh, and therefore that was being broken by the protocol. Uh, so that particular argument was dismissed, uh, as were the other arguments. Right. The, the economic and the constitutional are one, so to speak, but somewhat like what's going on behind you at the moment. The bell tolled for that particular argument, at least in the Belfast High Court, and it's bound for the, the Supreme Court. What we did have, though, Tony, is the extension to the grace period should reduce the tensions around that over the course of the marching season. The UK and uh, the European Union came to some agreement as to how that might be achieved during the week. Yeah, so we, we've been discussing this uh, over time on the podcast uh, and it all happened on Wednesday of this week, in fact, the same day as the High Court ruling. And again, we had a choreography between the EU and the UK setting out a range of flexibilities, uh, not just on chilled meats uh, and extending the grace period on chilled meats, but there were also elements on medicines, on guide dogs, on uh, the requirement for motorists to have a a green card for insurance when crossing from Northern Ireland into the Republic uh, or coming from from GB into Northern Ireland and into the Republic. Um, And we had some other measures on the tagging of livestock. So livestock might go back and forth to, to livestock fairs um, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and under the normal EU rules they would have to be tagged each time and registered so they've introduced a, 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 a what they call a delegated uh, act a piece of legislation to cover that to say that that's not going to be necessary um, so yeah on paper this should certainly ease the tension in the coming weeks as the marching season starts to reach its peak um, and uh, but then you know, we are going to have to revisit this in September. The extension of the grace period runs until 30th of September. And both sides have said that this should be a window for some kind of long-term agreement on what to do with all the food uh, and animal-derived products that go from GB into Northern Ireland supermarkets. Uh, and how to deal with the customs elements of that as well. But again, both sides are at cross purposes over what exactly this extension is for, Mm. because the EU says very clearly that it is for supermarkets in Northern Ireland to continue to adapt their supply chains. The Commission has been saying that there is statistical evidence showing that Northern Ireland supermarkets have started to source those products, chilled meats, uh, mince, sausages, chicken nuggets and so on, especially mince meat for some reason. They, they are continuing to source those products either in Northern Ireland or in the South. So that means a, a, like a long-term adaptation to that supply chain is possible. And certainly the Commission was arguing to Member States 
this is why it's worth doing this. Uh, this shows you that the, the protocol is working. Um, of course, the UK has a completely different take, saying uh, we have extended this grace period uh, so that we can get a long-term solution. And the, there, there's no reason why sausages, mints and so on shouldn't be sold in Northern Ireland if it comes from, from GB. But the reason that both sides can do that is because of the strange technical workaround that they've had to use um, whereby one side issues a, a unilateral declaration, in this case the UK, saying that they're going to continue importing these meat products until the 30th of September, and they will continue to abide by EU law in food safety until that time, but they won't change their law if the EU changes its laws. In other words, it won't be dynamic alignment with EU law until the 30th of September, while the EU has been saying uh, so then the EU will issue its own unilateral declaration, taking note of the, the UK's unilateral declaration and, and everybody goes home happy. Uh, except, right. as I say, you know, there, there is, they are at, they're, they're at cross purposes over what this extension is for. And I think both sides pretty much say that's just the way we have to do it. Right. Um, because it's a unilateral declaration, then each side has its own interpretation as to what that declaration means. Right. Well, I mean, all sides presumably agree that temporary extensions to grace periods are not a durable solution. And retailers in Northern Ireland are of the same view. I think Aon Connolly was saying that during the week that a preferable option from the point of view of retailers in Northern Ireland is some kind of a trusted trader scheme to be bedded down. Well, it's wonderful to see them working together, the EU and, and the UK government, but in the grand scheme of things, this is a peripheral matter. Um, supply chains have uh, changed. What we really need to see them do is work towards that trusted trader scheme um, that we need by the 1st of October. If we don't see that by the 1st of October, then you're talking uh, about less choice on the shelves and cost increases that quite simply families here in the North can't afford. I mean, does that conflict with what we have at the moment? Is that a potential landing zone or what are the complications of that in terms of arriving at a compromise to both sides? Well, I think we are starting to see um, a landing zone or, or at least um, a pathway to a landing zone. Um, what the UK has been looking for is uh, something like equivalence. In other words, both sides acknowledge that they... They have high food safety and animal health standards. The UK was in the EU for 43 years. It hasn't changed its legislation since the 1st of January. Uh, so therefore, both sides start off at the same position. And if, if the UK, for example, diverges from those standards, then uh, the EU would be welcome to increase the checks and controls on food going across the Irish Sea accordingly uh, and that it should be risk-based. So there should be some mechanism to say what exactly is the risk to these sausages or mince or whatever crossing the Irish Sea uh, to the single market or to consumer health. The EU has argued all along that they have built up a very important solemn body of law that all member states follow uh, on SPS, sanitary and phytosanitary rules, that this body of law is based on the precautionary principle, and that principle is zero risk to consumers. And it's been upheld by uh, 
a ruling in the European Court of Justice. So they're not simply going to kind of waive the rules to suit the UK. What they say is, if you want to have no checks or controls on SPS, then you have to sign a Swiss-style veterinary agreement with us. Uh, keep your rules in line with EU rules. You can do that temporarily. If you have a free trade deal coming up in four or five or six years, then at that point, you're welcome to rescind that agreement. And then we go back to what the protocol demands, right. which is checks and controls. So, you know, they have been definitely at odds over, over the way forward. But interestingly, during the week, there was a briefing by a senior EU official on this. And on this question about where we go next, he said, look, if if the UK don't want to have any checks or controls on the Irish Sea, then the only way to do that is through this Swiss-style SPS agreement. But if they want to have, if they're prepared to have some checks and controls, they need to tell us which of those controls they're talking about. And they also then need to tell us how they're going to diverge from EU standards on, on food safety. So to me, that was, you know, not exactly a door closing on the idea of something in between dynamic alignment and equivalence. The EU is effectively saying to the UK, look, tell us what you have in mind. You know, if you want no controls at all for SPS, then you have to have a, a Swiss-style alignment. But if you're prepared to have some checks and controls in the same way that there are checks and controls between the EU and New Zealand, which is a, an equivalence-based agreement, then let us know what, what controls you want to keep and what controls you want to get rid of, and then we can talk. Right. Um, so I think I think that was a, a signal that that's where the action is going to be over the next few months. Just in terms of the reaction and I suppose the choreography leading up to this latest extension of the grace period and then the respective statements afterwards, in the lead up to it, the European Union was signalling that it was minded to grant the extension, but on the condition that the UK aligned with the EU for the duration of the grace period. In his reaction, which we'll hear now, uh, the UK's point man on this, David Frost, said that he was happy the grace period extension had happened but and that the UK didn't have to align. So we're very glad that we'd be able to, we've been able to agree with the EU that uh, sausages and other chilled meats can move from Great Britain to Northern Ireland for another three months. Uh, without any question of aligning with EU rule changes in future. This obviously is only a temporary provision. We do need a permanent solution to this. Northern Ireland is an integral part of the UK and should be able to get the same products as every other part of the UK. So what happened to well, conditionality well, specifically, there? Specifically what they've said is they don't have to dynamically align. Okay, so um, that that's an important distinction. Uh, and, and the reason... The reason why this is an issue, I think we may have touched on this on, on the podcast earlier this week, th- there is a, a kind of a technical problem in that the EU brought in a fairly big piece of legislation in April of this year. It's called the Official Controls Regulation, which covers uh, animal health and food safety. It, it was a long time in the making this legislation. It began its its life even before Brexit happened. But it finally was agreed by member states and came into effect in April. 
but member states had uh, three or four months to adapt to it, which which would mean that the legislation would properly come into effect in in August. So that would technically mean that the UK would be out of step with this new leg- legislation between August and the end of September. And, you know, I don't think anybody in the EU was expecting the UK to change its rules to stay in step. So when David Frost says we're not going to dynamically align, meaning we're not going to change our rules every time the EU changes its rules, um, that's what he was referring to. Now, I mean, it's only a three month extension. So, you know, like it's unlikely that there's going to be a vast amount of dynamic alignment in that period of time anyway. Yeah, but sure. Obviously, he was able to say to his base, hey, look, we're getting this this great deal and we don't even have to dynamically align. So aren't we great? What a victory for the UK. So just, but in reality, it's just to get around that issue of, of this new regulation that's coming into effect. Right. So, ju- But just to be clear about that, at the moment as it stands, because Britain is pretty much abiding by the status quo ante with regard to its food and phytosanitary standards, we have alignment at the moment, which is... Yes. Is yeah. that accepted and, and what, formally what by is, both uh, sides? Yeah, I mean, what what he's saying is the UK will not change its rules for the duration of this extension. So in other words, the rules that they have are the rules that existed before they left the EU. Right. And those rules won't change. So that, that's kind of the reassurance to the EU that, you know, that the food that is produced under those rules is, is safe for consumers and, and the single market. Okay, but... I suppose what I'm what I'm trying to ask is, are we in a situation at the moment where alignment is accepted? I suppose the only thing open to question then is whether the UK changes its current rules or indeed whether the EU changes or in its own view enhances its own rules to put the UK out of step with it. But could the situation we have at the moment be regarded as sufficient alignment until one or other side changes in order to get around the checks Uh, involved in the Northern Ireland Protocol? Well, I mean, essentially, uh, what the two declarations tacitly acknowledge is that the UK is aligned at the moment. It's not going to change its rules um, between now and September. The EU has brought in updated rules on on SPS and, and so on. But they're you know they're willing to live with the fact that that the UK is not going to stay in step with this this new official controls regulation right. um and, and that's all fine i mean the, the the bigger question is what happens after the end of september uh, and that's where that's where the bigger negotiation will be and why the, i suppose why why does it become an issue after the end of september if it's accepted now in principle by both sides that they are effectively in alignment i mean what would the major change be if they can? I suppose if they can live with being fractionally out of step at the moment, could that ambiguity be let run indefinitely? Well, no. This is the point. I mean, the point the EU is making is that we can't have rolling extensions to grace periods. As far as the EU is concerned, the only reason they granted the grace period in December of last year was that the UK argued that supermarkets weren't ready to make the adjustment. That's what the EU is saying. Right. Um, that the UK had accepted that supermarkets would have to change their supply chains to get this stuff from elsewhere, yeah. and that they they weren't ready. And so the EU is saying, well, look, we granted a grace period of six months to for for supermarkets to adapt. Some of the adaptation has happened, 
but it hasn't happened in its entirety. So that's why we're prepared to give you another three months so that those supply chains can be adapted in, in their totality. Um, and also they're arguing, look, we, we, we simply can't have rolling extensions of grace periods. It doesn't provide stability and certainty for, for businesses. But there's another, there's another kind of intriguing element to this, which uh, the UK is kind of banking on. And uh, it's, I mean, to me, it sounds like hedging, although officials I've spoken to have said it's not. But during that briefing last week on the EU side, there, there, there was, you know, a, a definite charge that the UK is not implementing what it promised to implement under the treaty, which is uh, border control posts at Northern Ireland ports. So the, these are the, the, this is the infrastructure that does the testing on live animals and, um, and food coming in. Um, under the protocol, you are supposed to, they're supposed to have permanent infrastructure of uh, border control posts. And because the Northern Ireland executive, which is the devolved uh, administration responsible for building these, because they couldn't start on this work until they got the go ahead from the UK last year, the those border control posts are not ready. And the, the temporary border control posts, which are effectively uh, porta cabins, are, are what they have at the moment. Um, now, Edwin Putz, the former DUP leader uh, and currently the agriculture minister, has basically stopped work on the permanent border control posts because he disagrees with the protocol. He doesn't think these border control posts should be built at all. Um, and the UK is, 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 is not intervening to, to basically compel the Northern Ireland executive to build these things. Um, and what they're saying is, well, you know, we're, we're going to have a negotiation with the EU and we hope by the end of it, uh, those checks and controls will be vastly reduced. Mm. So why do we need to build these border control right. posts? Yes, of course, we're going to need to have something because, you know, at the end of the day, we'll, we'll have to be some level of checks. So... You know the, the the what what they're saying is well, we don't want to tell the DUP that they have to build these border control posts because who knows you know we might get a a deal in in three months time where uh, all these checks are radically reduced so what's the point in building these border control posts and that kind of thing feeds into the whole distrust narrative on the EU side right uh, but you can see how it looks like they're kind of hedging uh, on this issue in the expectation that they're going to get a deal that will reduce uh, checks and controls uh, quite radically. Right, there's a faint echo there of Ireland standing down its own no-deal customs planning during the whole pre-Brexit process. I mean, yeah, because of course these, these things are, you know, it's it's the classic infrastructure. It's symbolically and politically terribly sensitive. And um, the UK is saying, well, we're, we're not going to force the DUP agriculture minister to build these things, even though, you know, that's in the treaty that we signed with the European Union. Right. In terms of the trust, we were recording this at uh, 20 past two, my time, 20 past three, your time. So as we speak, the uh, press conference was being set up for uh, Angela Merkel's meeting with Boris Johnson in, in checkers. And I suppose one of the things that was on the agenda of those talks was a level of restoring trust between the UK and Germany after the whole Brexit experience, amongst other things. Chancellor Merkel, uh, let's go to Sam Coates of Sky News. 
Thank you, Prime Minister. Chancellor. Um, Chancellor, post-Brexit divisions remain over Northern Ireland. Can you envisage any situation where the text of the protocol might be changed in future, or even EU law altered in order to make the situation on the ground easier. Yeah, we have natürlich auch über die <coughs> Well, of course, we talked about um, the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. I personally believe that um, on the basis of this protocol and within the framework of how it was negotiated, we can find pragmatic solutions that, on the one hand, um, maintain the integrity of the single market but that will also, on the other hand, contribute to creating um, acceptable solutions for the people. Um, it is obviously understandable that this was prolonged, and I think it's a good thing that this was prolonged uh, for another few months, and I think it should be possible for all of us to come to a pragmatic solution uh, within this um, um, grace period. And I think I'm optimistic that this can happen. Let's go to uh, Annette Dittert uh, from ARD. First question, also one related to foreign policy, um, Madam Chancellor. The British government, ever since Brexit, um, uh, is very much trying for a good bilateral relationship with um, Germany. You have a government um, that very much feels to uh, the European Union, to uh, also the single market in the European Union. So it may be very difficult for you to reconcile these two uh, positions. Um, have you been able to convince uh, the British Prime Minister? Would you not be a good thing to... Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, to the next summit. Successfully build your political career on a, let's say, rather confrontational stance towards Brussels. You now seem uh, happy to engage with your European allies on a bilateral basis, but rather reluctant to do the same with Brussels. Isn't it time to end the political point scoring and truly cooperate, start truly cooperating with the EU as well, as Joe Biden does it? Yeah, Frau uh, well, Ms. Dittert, I think that it is very much in the nature of things that after Britain has left um, the European Union, bilateral relations um, very much come to the fore. And as I said at other, um, in other, um, in, on other occasions, we should go step by step. It's good for our bilateral relations. Uh, um, we, uh, it is quite true, from a German side, always see ourselves as part of the European Union. And I think the next step then should be to deal with the Northern Ireland Protocol and see to it that it is um, these questions are settled in such a way that each and everyone can live with it, that their vested interests are recognized and acknowledged. And then I think we should leave ourselves some time and see how this uh, works out, how this plays out in reality. I said this, and there are very good reasons for maintaining uh, between um, the 27 member states um, and their um, relations to have from time to time, again, also um, issues, uh, discussing these, these issues in a, in a bilateral way with, the, with Britain, but pre very pragmatic. We should not overstretch uh, our, our, ourselves there. Uh, well, uh, thank you, Annette. But I, I must say that actually, if you, uh, Washington has nothing like the intensive uh, consultation uh, discussion uh, that continues between the UK government and our friends and partners, uh, not just bilaterally, but of course with the Commission. And one of the things that we're talking about, as you as you rightly point out, is the is the protocol where there are, there, are, there remain a lot of issues to be solved. It it, it remains extraordinary that 20% of all the external checks conducted on the perimeter of the whole EU uh, take place uh, in Northern Ireland. I think it's extraordinary that 30 
drugs, including cancer drugs, are currently uh, forbidden from moving from uh, Great Britain uh, to Northern Ireland, to say nothing of the problem of, of chilled meats. Uh, with which you'll be familiar. And uh, um, imagine, uh, imagine if, uh, as I say, as I, as I think I pointed out to an, another uh, dear European colleague, imagine uh, if, if Bratwurst uh, could not uh, be, be moved from uh, Dortmund to, to Dusseldorf. Uh, because of the jurisdiction of an, of an international court, uh, you would think it was absolutely extraordinary. And so we have to, uh, we have to sort it out. I'm sure that, as Angela says, with uh, goodwill and with patience, uh, we can uh, sort it out. But uh, we're going to need uh, to do that. We're going to need to fix it because it, it needs to be to be fixed. But hopefully, as we as we said at our at our bilateral, when it comes to to chilled meats, the, you know, the worst is behind us, as as I think. Uh, I think Angela uh, said, or maybe I said it, uh, but uh, we, ha we must make progress on that. Going back to what you were talking about there, about the full implementation of the terms of the withdrawal agreement and the protocol, where is that level of trust at at the moment in terms of the conduct of the negotiations from the EU point of view? Well, I mean, trust trust has been badly damaged, uh, obviously, over the protocol and the, and the unilateral actions by the UK um, what they've done over the protocol with this extension is they have certainly restored a bit of calm and order to the relationship because the UK didn't do another unilateral gambit. They, they, they formally proposed an extension or, or sought an extension and the EU went through its procedures. They commissioned talked to member states. It, it was arranged through a proper council decision that all member states had to agree to. Um, uh, and you know we, we, we do the issue is now parked for three months um, and just by by coincidence or by design uh, the government of Jersey uh, this week also announced that it was going to extend the transition period for small French boats fishing in its waters uh, and that of course relates to the the gunboat diplomacy diplomacy we had a few months ago so that has kind of also fed into this uh, narrative of trying to calm things down and 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 to be uh, to be nice to one another, mm. um, but the, you know the the both sides are still quite far apart on how they resolve this issue long term, and you know the UK is clearly saying the EU has to move further, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean the the one big issue they dealt with this week again was medicines, which we've talked about in the podcast quite a lot. Um, and Mara Shevchevich making the point that, look, the EU is going to change its legislation just to facilitate the UK and to ensure that medicines that are produced in or distributed from Great Britain into Northern Ireland can continue to be licensed in Northern Ireland because, you know, under the normal operation of the protocol, all medicines in Northern Ireland would have to be yeah. effectively approved by the European Medicines Agency or or approved by an authorised holder that was based in Northern Ireland or another EU member state. Um, so, you know, this is something that the EU is saying, look, you know, we, we, here we are, we're changing our laws uh, to help you guys and to be as flexible as possible. Um, but it's clear from the rhetoric from David Frost and others that they believe that the EU has to go a lot further uh, and it'll be interesting to see how that goes down. Yeah, well, I mean, it does seem like facts on the ground are being created. I mean, the extension of the grace period is being done on the basis that there's an implicit acceptance that the two sides are aligned at the moment. So, I mean, 
there is an element of a, a principle being conceded there. And on the medicines thing, it's obviously designed to overcome a problem, particularly with the likes of cancer drugs. They're saying, well, mm. look, those medicines can flow. So again, there seems to be a slight concession from the European side on a recognition of equivalence there. From the UK side of things, if it is, as you say, you know, the e if the attitude is the EU must do better, they seem to be banking those concessions or concessions of principle and saying, well, now that you've conceded that, how can we build more on that? Yeah, uh, I, I think that's fair to say. Uh, you know, the, the, the sort of signals from the UK since the, the package of measures was agreed on Wednesday is, you know, th- these are common sense uh, flexibilities and, and we need we need lots more of that, please. Uh, right. And, um, you know, that that's, again, setting up for, uh, you know, potential conflict over um, over how we proceed. I mean, Maro Shevchevich, when he announced these measures on Wednesday, said, look, this is not a blank check. The UK still has to fully implement um, what they agreed with the protocol. And, you know, we may find some kind of holistic solution on SPS rules, but we may not. Mm. And, you know, th- so there is a bit of can kicking uh, involved here. Um, and again, you know, we've talked about the wider political context in Northern Ireland, how the DUP is clearly trying to make as much political capital as possible on, on the protocol between now and the assembly elections next May. And, you know, with Jeffrey Donaldson taking over, his uh, speeches so far have definitely not shown any acknowledgement that the protocol is going to be a fact of life that we all have to uh, get used to. I mean, he's saying it's still his stated aim to get rid of it within weeks um, so, yeah, we have a truce, but clearly there's room for more hostilities. I suppose, but once upon a time, the, it, during in the pre-Brexit process, the Irish government was always keen to put Northern Ireland on the table, and the British government seemed a bit at odds as to how it would deal with that, and, and seemed to play the field on the basis of the rules that the EU uh, established in line with the Irish government's thinking on it. There seems more recently to have been a more effective instrumentalization of Northern Ireland by the British government in these in this whole procedure in terms of seeking concessions uh, on the on the Northern Ireland protocol yeah I mean uh, you know since the first of January if you, if you consider that you know in December Michael Gove and Maro Shevchevich had an agreement and both sides says great you know we, we've we've agreed a bunch of flexibilities and this should mean that the protocol uh, can function, that it'll get more or less acceptance from stakeholders and, and the communities in Northern Ireland. Arlene Foster, as we remember, uh, said that the protocol was a fact of life. Um, best of both worlds. Be- yeah, talk of the best of both worlds. But then suddenly all that changed in January um, and we had the Article 16 uh, fiasco at the end of January. Then we had the real world experience of what the protocol w- was doing to supplies, to parcels, uh, to plants and so on. And suddenly these became tangible, vivid political challenges. And uh, with, with you know, in combination with the Article 16 issue at the end of January, the UK has, has gone completely to uh, a, a much more radical, sharper, antagonistic interpretation of what's happening and they've kind of brought the DUP under their wing uh, in, in that regard. 
Um, I mean, you're still hearing the rhetoric that the protocol, as it's being applied, is, is not sustainable. Even since the package of measures was uh, announced on Wednesday, the the signals from the UK side are, yeah, that's great, but uh, it's still not sustainable unless there is a radical change on the SPS issue. Um, right. Uh, and so that, that's, uh, I, I think that kind of edge to the UK narrative is, is going to be there for some time. Okay. Well, Camille, you're running soon for a flight and I'm running into a meeting. So um, you, where you are in Ljubljana, you've been speaking to Ireland's Commissioner with Responsibility for Financial Services, Mairead McGuinness, and talking matters protocol with her. Yeah, so I, I spoke to Mairead McGuinness um, because the European Commission was down in Slovenia for a meeting with the Slovenian government on the priorities of the of the presidency. And I asked her, first of all, about uh, her reaction to the package of measures on the protocol and the UK's response to that, and also about the financial services issue, which uh, is going to come into sharp relief now because... Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has been setting out his vision uh, of the City of London in a post-Brexit world where they want to do things differently in terms of regulation, in terms of the stock exchange, uh, in terms of banking. Uh, and uh, I was asking her, what are the, what, what is the state of play on equivalence for uh, UK financial services companies operating in the EU? So we can hear, first of all, what she said on the protocol and then I asked her about the financial services issue. Well, I think the whole idea of the package of measures announced by um, Maros Sefcovic was to make sure that we're not in the same place in three months' time because clearly enough preparation wasn't take, undertaken in Northern Ireland or, or businesses weren't advised. So what we would hope is that this time would be used to help businesses adjust where that's necessary uh, rather than it just being a freeze frame where nothing gets done. And as to the different interpretations, I would hope, because on this occasion the UK looked for uh, an agreement with the, the Commission rather than unilateral action and I think that signals, uh, I would hope, their desire to work with the European Union to solve all of these problems. So September, uh, let, let's all hope that it works in that direction and that the problems which were difficult before this announcement are sorted out by the time we get to September. Rishi Shunak, the, the, the UK Chancellor, set out his vision for the City of London post-Brexit in terms of uh, a different approach to regulation. Uh, and, and in that speech, he said that he saw no reason why the UK still couldn't be used for, for uh, euro clearance of, of, deliver, of derivatives. Um, do you think that the UK, if it does drift in a significantly different direction in terms of regulation, that it risks uh, delaying the equivalence decision and, and where are we at with that decision? Well I think just to explain because the equivalence decision isn't imminent and nor is it a process because as you know financial services weren't included in the TCA, the agreement. Um, what we're doing now is looking at what we need in terms of long-term stability in the financial system. We took two decisions, one of them around these uh, clearing, the central clearing, uh, which will expire in June of next year and in the interim we're working with experts to see is that a vulnerability for the European financial system? And if it is, what do we need to do to guard against that uh, vulnerability in the system? Uh, we're not looking at equivalence yet. We will be setting up this um, forum where we will discuss these issues. Um, but I suppose there's a difference between the discussions on a trade agreement and the discussions on the financial system. They will be done on a case-by-case -case basis uh, and there's no sense of urgency. On January the 1st, when this new regime kicked in, there was no instability and there's no instability 
on July the 1st and that's what we want to maintain is stability but we will look at all of these issues uh, I took note of the Chancellor's statement I think in the long run we are expecting the United Kingdom to diverge because that's been their um, mantra if you like because of Brexit and therefore we have to be careful not to grant equivalences based on what exists today but look at what the future might hold and always looking at what is in the interests of the European Union and our financial stability. All right, Tony, financial services equivalents, what a week for Sean to be on leave, eh? He, exactly. Yeah, he, he missed that, miss one. that one. Okay, well, look, looking ahead to the coming week, what's coming up on your radar? Well, the big thing next week is the European Parliament resumes its plenary sessions in Strasbourg, so the whole uh, travelling circus will go down to Strasbourg uh, and that'll be the first big moment for the Slovenian presidency of the EU that's been under a lot of uh, spotlights because of the remarks of uh, Janis Janza, the Slovenian prime minister on press freedom and uh, media independence. He's, uh, he's been accused of attacking uh, Slovenian journalists uh, quite uh, nastily on Twitter and this comes in the wake of the whole question about Hungary and the rule of law and uh, because he has been supporting Viktor Orban at the European Council uh, on the LGBT issue. Uh, so that's a bit of a rocky start for the Slovenian presidency, but uh, we'll see what happens next week at the um, at the European Parliament. They'll be setting out their, their priorities for the presidency, which is going to be dominated by uh, the COVID recovery funds, uh, the, the Green Deal, uh, relations with Russia, rule of law. Very sensitive topic. Okay, all right. That's it from me, Colm O'Mungoyne, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe Editor underneath the Alps in Ljubljana.